0: to continue our series on the outline of the prophecy of Isaiah, considering this morning the Emmanuel prophecy. And we're going to read (coughs) as an introduction, Isaiah chapter 12, to be led in that reading by Brother Charles Fraser, please. In the introduction, we're pleased to invite our Mansfield to address us further on Isaiah, the Emmanuel prophecy. My dear brethren and sisters in Christ Jesus, before commencing on the Emmanuel prophecy, let us just briefly review what we did yesterday when we were considering, of course, the circumstances at the time that King Isaiah died. We made this point at the beginning of these talks that the prophet Isaiah is a prophet that is constantly a prophet, a prophet of hope. And with every indictment of the nation. And with every challenge to that nation, and in view of the prophecies of doom that he was compelled to speak concerning them because of their ungodliness, there is always a measure of hope. And so it was in that sixth chapter of uh, Isaiah that was uh, given at the time that King Isaiah died, and which we pointed out really epitomized the whole ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that he went forth preaching to the people, knowing full well that those people would not accept his message. And therefore he spoke to them in in parables for that very reason that he wanted people to search out his meaning, to understand the significance and the power of uh, salvation sufficiently enough that they themselves might give themselves to seeking out the meaning of these things that are given in such a way in the word of God. You know, it's really the secret of good study to understand that, and to never lose your curiosity as to why certain things might be found in the Word of God. And it matters not what part of the Scriptures you turn to, even those parts that seem to be so monotonous, for example, the first Chronicles chapter 1, where you have merely a a series of names, hidden behind that there are tremendous truths that can excite us in relation to the Word of God. So it is with the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ, but unfortunately their ears were dull of hearing, their eyes they had closed. And that people that constituted the ecclesia at that time, unfortunately failed to appreciate the great privilege that was theirs. And so they failed to measure up to that which required the salvation of the nation at that particular time. Now in this particular chapter, the sixth chapter of Isaiah, the question is asked, Lord, how long? How long would the message be given in this form to that people? And the answer is in verse 11, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And that came to pass in AD 70, when the Romans poured over the borders of Judah. And Judah was was destroyed and the temple was ruined. Those words were then fulfilled. They had delivered the Lord Jesus Christ up to be crucified. They had cried, His blood be upon us and upon our children. And those words were taken up and those words were, were uh, terribly fulfilled in the Holocaust of A.D. 70. And so the cities were wasted, the people were taken into captivity, and the land became desolate and Yahweh removed men far away, and there was a great forsaking in the midst of the land. And that was the termination of a people who had the greatest privilege of any nation under heaven. And it's a reminder to us that God is not mocked. And as far as the word of God is concerned, we stand in the position of Israel today. And we are the people of privilege. We must recognize the privileges that are ours and in recognizing the privileges that are ours, give ourselves to the things of God, because the days are short, and the opportunities are being lessened, as we see the signs about us. But then we have this message of hope in verse 13, But yet there shall be a tenth, and it shall return and be eaten. And the word tenth really signifies a tithe, and the tithe of anything was God's part of that provision and it shall return and be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak full of strength, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. So you see, the message is not left without certain a measure of hope. And we know that as far as the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned, the same thing uh, characterized His message. For whilst He spake about Jerusalem being trodden down of the Gentiles, He limited it until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So here again, you see, in the message of Isaiah, there's an exact foreshadowing of the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is a message of hope. And in that tenth, we have the tithe. And while we're speaking about the tithe, let us bear in mind what indeed the tithe represented. It is sometimes thought that that the people of Israel gave to God a tithe. That's incorrect. They never gave to God anything, not a thing. What happened was God gave them nine-tenths of his. And that's the way we need to look at any offerings that we might make to, to Almighty God. We're giving to God nothing. As he said to David, the cattle upon a thousand hills of mine, what can you give unto me? What we give unto God is only a tithe of what he has given unto us. So we need to recognize that. We need to count our blessings. We need to see them in the practical things of life. We need to see them in the everyday issues of life, not merely in the word of God, not merely in the truth that we possess, but in everything that we have, there is found the mercy and the goodness of Almighty God. And anything that we give back to God, as we might say it, Anything of money or of material things or even of ourselves and anything at all, we're only giving back to God a portion, a tie of what is His. Now what those people in the land today, those people that will go through the Holocaust when Russia comes down and a third will be saved, they will constitute the tenth of that land. And there will be in them, of course, the Holy Seed, the substance of that tree of strength mentioned there. So with every message of doom there is a compensating message of hope and that brings us to the next section in the in the, uh, in the prophecy of Isaiah and someone will indeed have to instruct me in the mechanics of things oh I see that's interesting isn't it good now you see we come now to the book of Emmanuel or the day of Israel, uh, Yahweh concerning Israel It takes us from the 7th chapter, verse 1, to the end of the 12th chapter. If we care to look at those places, we will see how the book of Emmanuel there uh, commences a new section in the prophecy of Isaiah. It's important for us to see these different sections, that they are really different sections. And in this part here, you have the book of Emmanuel, a little prophecy on its own. So you see it, chapter 7 and verse 1, and it came to pass in the days of Ahaz. So there's a commencement of a new subject. When you come to chapter 13 of Isaiah, you read the burden of Babylon, again a new subject. And in between that you have chapter 7 to chapter 12, which constitutes the day of Emmanuel, uh, the prophecy of Emmanuel. And as you look again at chapter 12 that you read this morning, (coughs) notice that in verse 1, and in that day thou shalt say, and again in verse 4, and in that day thou shalt say. And that prophecy is terminated at the end of that chapter. In the book of Emmanuel, in chapters 7 to 12 of Isaiah, we have a long history of Israel and the ministry of Christ from the days of Ahaz to the enthronement of the Lord in the age to come. Those things which we were singing about in that hymn this morning. Now the politics of that particular time were guiding the policies of the king. And that was a failure of King Ahaz. He allowed circumstances in his life to govern his attitude towards the things of God. And there's a warning in that. We can do likewise. We have to be on our guard. These things are recorded here for our learning and for our guidance. And we simply must not allow the circumstances of life to guide us in our relationship to Almighty God. It did on this occasion. Just to give you the background of the circumstances at this time, Assyria was now threatening the world and the Assyrians were on the march. They were the most brutal nation in history and people feared and dreaded the approach of the Assyrians. In the north, the nations of Syria, as against Assyria, Syria and Samaria, the ten tribes, in the here called Ephraim, in the, here called Ephraim, In the north, those two nations had joined an alliance one with the other, and they wanted Judah to come into that alliance so that the three nations would be in a common alliance against the Assyrian. Now, Ahaz refused to join that alliance. Not that he was going to put any trust and confidence in Yahweh. Oh, no. He was going to go to the Assyrian direct, and he was going to plead with the Assyrian to come along and help him and to help him against the confederacy of the north. He was fearful of that confederacy of the north. He dreaded them. He doubted his ability at all to be able to handle them, let alone the Assyrian. He had no confidence in God. He refused to submit to the things of Yahweh. He had no strength of purpose in his mind. And he allowed these things to motivate his policy. And fear, fear of man, dominated the man that was sitting upon David's throne. Whereas you should have had the confidence to stand up against those circumstances and putting his trust in Yahweh to set himself and, and to set the people an example of constancy and strength and faith in the face of problems and of difficulties. He failed to grasp that opportunity in his day and circumstance. And so he turned to the Assyrian. And as Isaiah going to tell him what the Assyrian will do to him. The Assyrian will take his money, the Assyrian will take his confidence, and the Assyrian will come to his aid. And we have it in the eighth chapter what the Assyrian will do. In verse 7 of chapter 8 Now therefore, behold, Yahweh bringeth up upon them, that's the uh, powers of the north, Rezin and, Remala, uh, Rezin and the, uh, the Assyrian and the, the Assyrian in Ephraim confederacy. Yahweh bringeth up upon them the waters of the river strong and mighty even the king of Assyria and all his glory and he shall come up over his channels and go over all his banks and he shall pass through Judah. And Isaiah was, was warning the king what's going to happen and that indeed did happen. The Assyrian came against the confederacy in the north but it also swept, swamped Judah and destroyed Judah and reached even to the neck and the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. And that's there because those circumstances are foreshadowing things that we are seeing in the development of the latter-day Assyria. And again I suggest to you, you want an excellent subject of personal research. Open your concordance. Look up the word Assyria as it is related in the prophecy of Isaiah and see how completely the Assyrian of the past foreshadows that of the future. Remember, the contemporary of Isaiah was Micah. And Micah said, He shall be our peace when the Assyrian shall come down into our land. And he wasn't talking of his time. He was talking of the future and of Messiah. And so you see you have the term Emmanuel there as you have it again in verse 10. Take counsel together and it shall come to naught. Speak the word and it shall stand for Emmanuel's sake for God is with us. But Isaiah is not telling Ahaz that God is with him. He's speaking of Emmanuel and in the Hebrew that is the word Emmanuel the same as you have it in verse 8. So here we have the prophecy of Emmanuel. Let us see something of the drama of the background of this prophecy. Understand now the political circumstances of the time, and remember that the king is filled with fear. So the king's going to put his confidence in flesh, and first of all he's going to see that the defences of the city of Jerusalem are such that they will be able to resist the confederacy in the north, the syrian uh, Siberian confederacy. So, uh, so Ahaz is found, as we open the pages of the Emmanuel prophecy in chapter 7, Ahaz is found with his, uh, with his associates down in the valley of the Kidron, looking at the place where the pools of Siloam are found, that he might pre- guard that against any attack uh, by the part of those of the north. And there he meets up with Isaiah the prophet. In verse 3, Yahweh said unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear Jashab, my son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool and the highway of the fuller's field. Very significant place is that. As they stood there and they would look up, as it were, to the city of Jerusalem that rises steeply from the valley below. And you can see that city poised on the hill above you. A very, very significant place is that. Very significant for those times. Significant even today but for those times because there Rabshakeh was going to come later on in the days of Hezekiah. So you see here we have Ahaz now and he is there because of his fear of these two uh, two powers of the north who are ridiculed by Isaiah the prophet in verse 4 of that chapter. And for the moment you see there was King Ahaz with his associates with his advisors down in that valley. And there face to face with him was the young prophet, because Isaiah would only be young at that particular time. So the prophet whose name means the salvation of Yah, the prophet whose name means the salvation of Yah, faces the king who's giving his confidence to the power politics of the time. And with the prophet there is, as you see in verse 3, his son, Shia jashab a word that signifies the remnant will return. So you see, the father and the son, standing there facing the king in the valley at the foot of Jerusalem, and uh, they pro- proclaim that message without opening their mouth, they proclaim the message, Yahweh will save and the remnant will return. And so you see, as far as Ahaz is concerned, he's faced with the prophet, his name he knows. And uh, Isaiah tells him, in verse 9, The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. Or if you do not affirm your faith in God, in the face of this fear, your kingdom will not be confirmed. And if it's not confirmed, then their nation will perish at the hands of the Assyrians. And you know, Shia jashab the son of Uzziah, whose name signifies the one that will return, had a temporary fulfilment in that particular time, which you would imagine Ahaz would have noted. Because you know, the powers of the north the powers of, the Syria, uh, of Syria and of Samaria did invade Judah and took away captives something like 200,000 people. And those captives were led away, we read in the second of chronicles 28. But God sent a prophet whose name was Oair. And the prophet Oded stood against the powers of Samaria and said it is not right for you to take captive your brethren you should let them return and though many had died in the battle that some of the remnant did return the king of uh, Syria at that uh, uh, the king of Samaria at that particular time took heed of the warning of Oded and those people were sent back to the land a remnant did return so you see, there was a primary fulfillment of the prophetic significance of the name of uh, Isaiah's son even then. But of course, it's speaking of the day of Emmanuel. Now, the, the prophet said to the king that he need no fear, those powers of the north, they weren't worth fearing, put his trust in God, and God would overthrow the enemy of Judah. And the prophet said to the king, in verse 11 Ask thee a sign of Yahweh thy God Ask it either in the depth or in the height above Any sign you like Ahaz you ask it of God God will give you that sign irrespective as to what you might ask He will give you that sign But the hypocritical king says in, as we have it in verse 12 I will not ask neither will I tempt Yahweh And he's quoting the law, you see, thou shalt not tempt weary men, will you weary weary my God also? Therefore Yahweh himself shall give you a sign, behold a virgin shall conceive, and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he might know to refuse the evil, and choose the good. And so he points out that before the child shall be known to do this, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. The problem is a minor one, as far as Almighty God is concerned. And he will give you a sign, and the sign will be, that a virgin shall conceive a bearer's son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. And in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, where the Lord Jesus Christ was born, it is said that his name was called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And that's the great principle as far as the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned. He is God with us. He is the personification of God manifestation. And we read concerning him in the 80th Psalm of verse 17 that God made him strong for himself. And he was born with the ability to lift himself to such a state of spiritual, uh, 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 spiritual uh, uh, perfection as to manifest almighty God in every way. And he was the word made flesh and dwelling among us. And Paul says God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. And so he speaks here of the coming of this Emmanuel. And then, of course, in the eighth chapter, he refers to the attack of the Assyrian that would destroy the people of Israel and would move down into Judah. And in the ultimate picture, he says in chapter eight of verse nine and 10, he says, associate yourselves together, O ye people, and ye shall be broken to pieces. Give ear, all ye of far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken to pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken to pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand. For Emmanuel, Now, those words that I've just quoted in chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, while they have a primary application to Assyria in the days of Isaiah, they really have an application today. We're seeing that develop today, aren't we? We're seeing the latter-day Assyrian in the Russian power. And you see there's a confederacy of nations. that has got to take place. They're going to associate themselves together, but they're going to be broken to pieces. They're going to associate themselves together in order to formulate the image of Nebuchadnezzar, the image recorded in Daniel chapter 2. But as that image was broken to pieces, so Isaiah says this confederacy will be broken to pieces because of Emmanuel for his sake. And then from verse 13 on to chapter 9 and verse 7, you have the complete outline of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will go through this rather uh, verse by verse, but not deeply. I will just point out the fulfilment of these various verses. And you will see how that there is set forth very clearly in proper sequential order the whole of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, John the Baptist introduced that ministry. And John the Baptist called upon the people to do what we read in verse 13. Sanctify Yahweh of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And there we have the message of John the Baptist. But how did people respond to the one that he foreshadowed and of whom he was the forerunner? We read in verse 14, And he shall be for a sanctuary to those that desire it, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a dune and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And there we have the response of the Jewish people to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those words are actually quoted and applied to the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. So we have there the reaction of the people to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the result of this in verse 15 is the rejection of Christ. Many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. The people of Israel in their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, that minority who accepted his teaching, they sued the law, they burned up the testimony, and so we have in verse sixteen, bind up the testimony, sue the law among my disciples. So you see, whilst the uh, majority of the nation rejected him and stumbled over that rock of uh, that stone of stumbling. The testimony and the law was sealed among his disciples. And so here we have a prophecy concerning the disciples, the selection of the disciples by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 17 uh, we find the casting off of Israel as a nation. I will wait upon Yahweh that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. And Isaiah there stands as a type for all those that embrace the truth in Christ. He stands, of course, for the multitudinous Christ. And he is saying, I will wait upon Yahweh, who hideth his face from the house of Jacob. And so, of course, Israel was cast off, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Then, whilst Israel is cast off, the next stage in the development of the purpose of God is the formation of ecclesias. And these ecclesias are formed not only among the people of Israel, but among the Gentiles as well. So in verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from Yahweh of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. And those words are cited in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 13 and applied to the ecclesias. See them there. If you are not familiar with the reference, please turn to it now, and make perfectly certain that this outline that I am giving you is in accordance with the facts. So in Hebrews chapter 2 and at verse 13, you have the Apostle Paul there citing these very words in order to emphasize the position of Ecclesiastes. So in verse 13, and again I will put my trust in him, and again Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. And on the background of that, you see, he is saying in verse 11, both he that sanctifieth, that's Jesus Christ, and they who are sanctified, that's the brethren of Christ, are all out of one. That's God. There's God's manifestation in the verse. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the ecclesia will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. So you see, those words are quoted to prove the principle of the development of ecclesias. And here we have them here. Now, if you like to consider the names of those, uh, those children, you'll have a very wonderful exhortation because Isaiah signifies Yah will save. Shia Jashub signifies the remnant will return. And Maah Shalah Hashbash, the other son of uh, Isaiah, uh, signifies rapid spoiler, speedy prey, and Emmanuel is God with us. So you join those names together and here's your sentence. The salvation of Yahweh will cause the remnant to return, that a spoiler shall come and take them into captivity because of Emmanuel. The whole eye and the children that God hath given unto me are for signs and for wonders. Look brethren, we are seeing those signs and wonders today because the remnant is starting to return. And we stand, as it were, with Isaiah and his sons at that time, witnessing to that truth because of Emmanuel. We're living in very wonderful, very significant times. So, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait upon Yahweh that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. That's how stand, waiting for Yahweh. Waiting for Yahweh. And the Lord Jesus, uh, the Apostle Paul says, that there is laid up for him a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give him in that day, and not to me only, but to all those that love his appearing. That's what we've got to develop in our hearts, a love for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the 30th chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, you have these wonderful words. In the midst of that prophecy concerning Egypt, verse 18, Therefore will Yahweh wait, That he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For Yahweh is a God of judgment. Blessed are all those that wait for him. See, we have fellowship with heaven when we're waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ, because in heaven too there's a sense of excitement as the time draws near for the Lord to return to his bride. You can understand that, can't you? because when a marriage is approaching people generally get very excited above it so in heaven there is a time of waiting for the culmination of these things that the lord may return and when we down here on earth are waiting too, there's a beautiful fellowship established between us and those that are in heaven at this particular time now coming back to our Emmanuel prophecy Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh hath given me are for signs and for wonders. What is the next development? What but the apostasy, unfortunately? And you have that in verse 19. When they shall say unto you, Seek unto them which have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and mutter. Those with familiar spirits are those that consult the dead they say the dead are not dead they're living their souls are somewhere they've never seen a soul but they presume that they are living somewhere why they don't know but that is what they teach you see and when they say unto you the ecclesia seek unto them that have familiar spirits unto wizards knowing ones the word means that peep and matter and it speaks of the way they speak you know the clergyman tone of voice that is so appealing my beloved, perishes. They peep and mutter. They've got nothing else. They've got no truth. But they've got to make an impression. So you see, that is what they do. And when they say, look, come to this knowing way, He's such a lovely man. And come and see him with a familiar spirit. He knows all about the dead. That they're not dead. Should not a people seek unto their God? Why should the living seek the dead? To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And right through the ages there's been that conflict between the truth and the world outside, between light and between darkness, between truth and between evil. And there is that warfare there. And sometimes the forces of evil will penetrate into the ecclesia. Where today are the seven ecclesias of Asia? They're gone. And many other ecclesias, where are they today? because the truth is always being under siege at the present moment. That's what the prophecy of Emmanuel is telling us, that the truth is always under siege, and when it's under siege to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And now the prophecy of Emmanuel continues to speak concerning the people of Israel. And they shall pass through the land, highly be and hungry. And it shall come to pass when they be hungry. You know, Amos talks about a famine in the land, not of bread and of water, but hearing of the word of Yahweh. That's our friends, the Israelites. They shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look up. But that's what Israel has done, unfortunately. They don't know their king. They're like Ohaz today and they will reject the sign of Emmanuel they won't listen to the sign of Emmanuel they curse their king and their God to look upward that's exactly what Israel is doing when they look into the earth behold trouble and darkness dimness of anguish and they shall be driven to darkness and that was the state of Israel after the flesh who could have had the truth then the message of hope Nevertheless the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the Rome, you see, and the land of Ut- Naphtali. The future won't be like that. The dimness shall not be such as that. It's going to be relieved. And we know it's going to be relieved. Why? In verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen great light. And here's the return of Emmanuel now. Here's the establishment of the kingdom of God. And the people walking in darkness in the middle of Israel today, they're going to see a great light. For rise, shine, thy light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen above thee. We read in the 60th chapter of Isaiah. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light and shine. Thou hast multiplied the nation... And taking the the uh, uh, rendition of the uh, of the margin to hear me preach the joy, they joy before thee according to the joy of the harvest, and as been rejoiced whom when they have divided the spoil. It's the time of harvest. It's springtime and harvest time, and now it's speaking of that period of time when Russia shall come down into the land. But it's not going to be like it was before when Rome took them away and scattered them into all parts of the earth. The dimness won't be like that. They're going to be relieved of that because, as we see here, the people that walked in darkness will see a great light. Thou hast multiplied the nation, and to him increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy of harvest when men divide the spoil. Why? Why, Emmanuel? because thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of oppressor, as in the days of Midian. What a thrilling time that was in the days of Midian. Remember how the people were there in their multitudes. They couldn't count the number of the Midianites. And there we have Gideon. And he's got 20,000 men. All men that are pretty courageous because there's not many weapons among them. But Yahweh says there's too many send those that are afraid and fearful back home and home go most of the community leaving about 10,000 already too many people give them another test take them down to drink the water see how they drink the water if they rush down to that water and put their heads in that water and drink like that send them home but if they drink like that with their eye on the enemy if they demonstrate that they are men of faith and also men of vigilance recognising that they are facing a problem hold them there 300 300 only now against this great company from multitude, 300 men and no arms among them at all how can they overthrow them well, we know the sequel. You know it better than I do, possibly. You know the circumstances, how he went down there with the pitchers and with the light and the cry, the battle cry of Gideon and of Yahweh. And the people are afraid and they turn their swords one upon another, fleeing eastward across the river Jordan and onwards with Gideon. Some wonderful words. Faint that for That's what it says That's Gideon. Faint that for tired out but pursuing. There was Gideon the man of faith. Now you see as it was in the days of Midian, a selection of soldiers first of all, a day of judgment from the household and the selection of those that will be with Emmanuel and then the attack upon the powers of be that have come down into the land and every battle of the warrior is with confused noise that really means his weapons of war and his armour with confused oil and garments rolled in blood, but this is going to be with burning and fuel of fire, and the Gogian host is going to be completely and utterly overthrown and destroyed, as in the days of Gideon, with, uh, with the defeat of the Midianite forces. Why? Because unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What wonderful words there! Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of Yahweh Sabaoth shall perform this. I don't know if you know, and it's not my subject really, but it's very interesting. That the word Sabaoth is in the feminine gender. I don't know if you didn't know that, but the word Sabaoth, which is the Hebrew word for armies, is in the feminine gender. The off on the end of a word denotes you know, the plurality, but also a feminine gender. And you see, here we have the bride of Christ. But the army was given in the feminine gender because it was subject to the commander, you see. And when Paul says that the wife ought to be subject to her husband as as the ecclesia is to christ it's really illustrating this principle that christ is the commander he is given to us as a commander of the people we're told in isaiah 55 and as the commander dominates and dictates the issues of life as far as that army was concerned so you see it's in the feminine gender showing that they are submissive to the control and to the direction of the commander who of course is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there we have the prophecy of Emmanuel. Now it goes on to speak, there's this prophecy of the unfortunate situation of uh, the condition of the people. Here we have not time to develop the theme. Just to show you one particular verse that's illustrative of the prophecy of Emmanuel, and the terms and titles which we have all seen, notice chapter 10 and verse 21. The remnant shall return. The son, of, uh, the son of the uh, son of Isaiah. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. Here we have the mighty God being Emmanuel there. In chapter 9, verse 6, he shall be called the mighty God, or the warrior of God, or the mighty warrior, because the word mighty there is the word gibor, and it signifies the warrior. And the remnant shall return, Unto the mighty God. Of course they will. They will return unto him in the age to come. And it goes and speaks down again and repeats something concerning the slaughter of Midian at verse 26. And it goes down to show now, from now onwards, from that verse onwards, it, it outlines the, the descent of the Assyrian as the Assyrian came down against the land in the days of Ahaz and dominated that land. And you see, in verse uh, 28, for example, it traces the descent of the Assyrian. He has come to Ahab, he has passed to Megon. At Michmash, he has laid up his carriages. They have gone over the passage, they have taken up their lodgings at Giba. Ramah is afraid. Gibeah of Saul is fled. So you see, the Assyrian is coming down this area here, he's. he's the the Assyrian is moving down this part down here and the people are in Jerusalem here whilst those places that you read about there are all congregated around the northern part of uh, Jerusalem there. And the people in Jerusalem are fearful and afraid because they are saying, Look, he's got the way out. That's Ai, incidentally. He's come down to Geba. He's moving down to, to this part here. He's just north of Jerusalem. What are we going to do? Now they want the sign perhaps. But they get the sign too. Because you see, as it goes down there, the prophet says, He shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. And then in verse 33, Behold, the Lord Adon Yahweh Sabaoth shall up the bow with terror, and her high highlands of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled, and he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one by a Mighty One. And there we have foreshadowed gain, you see, on the background of those times, the destruction of the Gogian host by a Mighty One. And look at the beautiful picture that now emerges in the eleventh chapter. Really it's foolish of us trying to cover the whole of Isaiah in a few sessions. We really ought to pause around these subjects. Because look at the beauty here. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of, his, uh, out of his roots. Compare that with what you read in verse 5 of chapter 10. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger. So you see there are two rods. The Assyrian is the rod of Yahweh's anger. And here we have the rod of uh, his peace and the rod of his righteousness. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and shall make him quick understanding. Seven principles, you see. Seven pillars of wisdom. And you read about the seven pillars of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Or go, let's go into the tabernacle, shall we? And what do we first see? We see a light there, illuminating the darkness. And it's got seven lights. Here's your light. There's your seven lights. There's your seven manifestations of the Spirit. And the oil that illuminated, that, that was the form of the, uh, the um, fuel to illuminate the dark place of the holy place. That oil is a symbol of the Spirit. Here you have the fruits of the Spirit. Seven fruits of Spirit. The the lampstand of Yahweh, as it were, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that lampstand we have him and we're told about what he shall do in that eleventh chapter, as he will, of course, establish in the land the principles of righteousness and the kingdom shall be established in all its glory. You read concerning verse 8 I'm very tempted to deal with it but I don't think I've got the time you, you, you know you have three children there you have a little child which I believe is Hezekiah is a tie but means the younger child you have a sucking child and you have a weed child and this is in the kingdom a little child shall leave them or a younger child shall leave them And you see in the Bible you have two sons of God, haven't you? Adam was the son of God, Luke tells us. And Jesus was the younger son of God. It's going to be the younger son of God that's going to lead them. And among those there will be a sucking child, which will be Israel after the flesh. And there will be a weaned child, which will be Israel after the spirit. And they are found in that chapter bringing peace to the land. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled of the knowledge of Yahweh, as the waters cover the sea. And then finally, in the final section of this Emmanuel prophecy, you come to the beautiful chapter we read this, evening, this morning. Uh, two songs there, notice. In that day thou shalt say, O Yahweh, I will praise thee. Now thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. Thou hast coveted me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yahweh is my strength and song. He has become... is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yahweh is my strength and song. He has become Yahshua, my salvation, Jesus. Therefore with joy shall ye draw waters out of the wells of salvation. That's the song of praise. Who's singing it? Against whom has Yahweh been angry? The people of Israel. Ahaz's nation. Against them as he'd be ang- angry. But now they're redeemed, you see. And there we have Israel after the flesh singing this wonderful song. And then in verse 4, you have another song. And now Israel after the Spirit, they sing this song. Praise Yahweh. Call upon his name. Declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto Yahweh, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. In all the earth, these excellent things. And what are they? He has given us salvation. And they will see a new aristocracy in the land in that day. They will see the Lord Jesus Christ associated with those of like precious faith, brought again from the dead, a wonderful thing, and made glorious in the land in that day. Sing unto Yahweh, for he has done excellent things. This is done in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou dress. It's the bride, it's in the feminine gender. Then have a trust of Zion, for great is the Holy One, even the Lord Jesus Christ, in the midst of thee. You know, you come over to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John, and we read these words in John chapter 7, in verse 37. In the feast of tabernacles, when the harvest was gathered in, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And we are told that on that great day of the feast, the Jewish people used to go down to the pool of Siloam, the pool mentioned by Isaiah the prophet in that Emmanuel prophecy, and filling their vases, their their, their pots, with the water they would bring them to the altar, and they'd pour them out at the foot of the altar, and they would recite and sing the words of Isaiah chapter 12 and 3, with joy shall we draw water from the wells of salvation. And the Jewish rabbis taught them that that means that one day there shall be manifested one who will give them a new understanding of the law of Moses, so on a great day, they went down to the pool of Siloam. They filled their vases with this water. They brought their back, singing as they did in the city of Jerusalem, pouring out the water at the foot of the altar, saying, with joy shall we draw water from the well of salvation. Understanding that to mean that the time will come when one shall stand up with a new understanding of the whole purpose of Almighty God based upon the law. And on that great day of the feast, when this was taking place, Jesus stood up and cried, and the word means he cried aloud. He shouted, If any man thirst, lead, come unto me and drink. He that believeth in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But that didn't he. And the age is going to come, brethren and sisters, when pray God that we will be there to sing that song in Isaiah 12 and to hear Israel after the flesh likewise sing that song and you know in the temple of the age to come when that is established and that temple is open for worship the Lord Jesus Christ is going to go in from the eastern precincts of that temple And he's going to take his place in the midst of that temple, surrounded by especially selected members of his own following. And they're going to make their place in that temple at that particular time. And there will be representatives of all the nations gathered there, and representatives of Israel as well, and angelic representatives as well. Because Paul says in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6, When he again bringeth the first forgotten into the world he saith let all the angels of heaven revere him so they will be there and all the representatives of the nation and we shall be there as well in that temple on the day that that temple is going to be opened, and then they will hear as the Lord Jesus Christ surrounded by his retinue comes from the eastern precincts of the temple makes his way across uh, hear those words that you have in Psalm 2 where it says that I shall declare the decree Thou art, my son, this day have I begotten thee. And the Lord Jesus Christ will be there, and that will be the third time that heaven's voice has been heard. First at his baptism, then at the Mount of Transfiguration, now at the time of his greatest glory, when he's king upon all the earth. And when that is, happens, and when that voice is heard, the words of Paul will be fulfilled that you have in the second chapter of the Philippians, the epistle to the Philippians. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father. They will believe that those words are prophetic. The time will be when they shall be there, their representatives in that temple, and they shall hear the voice of heaven, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that he is Yahweh for the glory of God the Father. And then there will be anthems of praise singing again then, as we have it in that twelfth chapter of Isaiah. And we read in the fifth chapter of the Revelation that in that day, that those that shall uh, sing a new song the saints, thou art worthy to take the book and the way from the seals thereof. For thou art slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign upon the earth. And John says that those those, those voices died away, he heard another voice. And now it is the voice of the angels, the angelic voices taking up that chorus. And he says, I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And their number was 10,000 times 10,000, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. John says, and then their voices died away. And then a third song was heard. And this song, stemming from Jerusalem, is taken up by people everywhere. until the whole of this world will be surrounded by songs. When the darkness is gone and the evil and the bloodshed and the wickedness has ceased forever, men will be everywhere singing this song. And he says, Every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, heard I say, blessing and honour and glory and power to him that sitteth upon the throne and and the Lamb forevermore. A world delivered out of wickedness and evil and bloodshed and violence given over to worship and the singing to the glory of God. Is it worthwhile, brethren and sisters? The truth that we have? Is it worth maintaining our standards of truth rather than I have? He says, I will not tempt Yahweh. And put in Scripture to support an error? There we have it in the songs that John sort of you know, he wept because he couldn't open the book. He said, don't we? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed to open the book. John, full of excitement, turned around to see the lion. man, a lamb that had been slain. A personification of self-sacrifice, a personification of true strength, because the Lamb is the hero of the Apocalypse. And if we deliver ourselves up to God as Jesus did himself to God, then we will be with the Lamb and the Lion in the day of glory to sing those songs of triumph. May that be our precious life.